Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And we're joined once again by Dr George McGavin. Thanks for coming, George. My pleasure. Fantastic to have you again. I'm very glad to be asked again. Just in case some people have been living under a rock and haven't seen you on telly, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, um, I'm an entomologist. I'm a zoologist. I was at Oxford for 25 years and then decided to become a a TV presenter. Well, rather, it found me. And um, I've done many documentaries over the years. And I was, for 14 years, one of the one show uh, family, as, as they call it. And I did, made about 80 to 100 short films on insects. So, yeah, that's me. So, your new book, it's... Well, I've listened about half of it so far. It's a nice, long... How, how long was it's it? It's quite ten, long, isn't it? 14 hours four, or something? 14 hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> it's good value then, isn't it? <laughs> it's good well, yeah. depending on, on what you think of it, yes, yes. <laughs> so, would you like to tell us a bit about it? Well, it's it's an audio book. It's my my view of, of the world, of insects, of how insects make the world work. I fell in love with insects at a fairly young age, and I, I remember having a, a school teacher in primary school. This must have been about class five or something. And in my end of term report, she wrote, George would be distracted by a fly going past. And I, I thought that was very, very prescient of her because. <laughs> I have ever since been distracted by flies and other things going past and have continued to be so. And really, uh, this, was, this is a book that's it's been brewing for some time and then I was asked if I would do an audiobook and I just had to call it All Creatures Small and Great, How Insects Make the World. We've listened to the audiobook. Any reason why the audiobook or is any particular reason? Well, well, How's Audio, who are the major retailers of audiobooks in the UK, approached me and said, we, we want to make our own originated originals, you know, as opposed to just an actor coming in and reading a book, which they haven't you know, produced. You know, would I make this book? Would I actually write the book and speak it into the mic? And I said, yes, I would. And it's the first one ever that they've done. And I, I really, I, I, at first I was quite terrified because some of your audience might not know that as a kid I had pretty bad stammer. So from the age of about, uh, well, when I was 14, 15, it was really bad. And if you had come back from the future and said, right, George, you're going to be a lecturer at Oxford for 25 years. And when you finish that, you're going to be a television presenter. And then you're going to narrate a 14 hour audio book into a microphone, uh, I would, no, I mean, nothing, nothing I could imagine would be more unbelievable. But there we are. So there's some, a lot of good stories and ways we relate to insects and, you know, scientific discoveries around them. One of them was to do with locusts and why we're overweight. Would you like to uh, talk about that? This is just one of the one of the ways that insects are useful to us. They're they're extremely useful as a model system. So insect cells are are animal cells. They work pretty much the same way. And insects are animals, and they they have the same needs and requirements and all the rest of it. And so lots of insects have been used over the years as laboratory systems. So most of what we understand about ecology, physiology, genetics, behaviour is based on working on insects. And you can see why, because insects are very cheap, they're easy to, they're quick to rear, you can get your answers 
in a very short time. If you were trying to do the same sort of work, working on dogs or cats or what elephants, you know, A, you'd get, you know, folks jumping up and down saying, you can't do this. Uh, and B, it would take you a very long time to get any results at all. So some scientists have been using insects as a, as a proxy for lots of things, insect eating it. And Steve uh, Simpson in Australia has used these animals as a, an incredibly good tool. Lots of people think that a, a locust is a, a generalist omnivore. It's a, it's a gourmand. It'll just eat anything and all the time. Actually, it turns out that they're not. They're, they're, they're gourmets. They, they, really, they really know what they want to eat. They, they eat enough protein. They eat just the right amount of carbohydrates and fats. And they will regulate their intake really carefully. Whereas we, on the other hand, will gorge on all sorts of stuff. It's, it's not entirely our fault because the manufacturers, particularly of processed foods, are very careful to get whatever they're selling to contain the bliss point, the point at which we go, oh, that's so good, you know, of fats, of carbohydrates, of sugars, that sort of stuff, so that we... It's addictive. It really is addictive stuff. And one of the reasons that, of course, we should basically avoid processed foods is because we are being led down a garden path to obesity uh, because they are made to be addictive. And, and in fact, understanding the food we need and how to regulate that is very, very important. For instance, proteins, of course, are what all animals need. And if your food does not contain enough protein and the food you're eating has a small amount, you will overeat it to get enough protein. So if your food contains a small amount of protein and lots of carbohydrates, you will continue to eat that food until you get enough protein, which means it's a factor that you're eating a lot more carbohydrate or fat or whatever than you should be. And we're sort of stuck in this, this, this rather artificial environment where we're being offered a whole smorgasbord of foods that are probably unsuitable. Well, in fact, are unsuitable. Uh, and we're trying to regulate our intake and, and finding it very hard to do. Yeah, it was quite fascinating to listen to all that for Steve Simpson, wasn't it? Well, he, he explains it much better than I do. But, but, but it shows you how insects can be they aren't only essential to the world and the way it works and our survival they're, they're also incredibly useful at teasing apart the mechanics the biomechanics of of what it means to be an animal yes yeah, it's, it's a great example of how researching one thing can lead to beneficial things in another field it, it was yeah actually it's kind of more of a general one really because i mean i don't i don't know how you manage to kind of narrow it down because obviously there are so many possible subjects and that that you could include. How on earth did you choose what to include and what to leave out? Well, it, it absolutely, very, very hard. I mean, the, my original text was a lot longer. I had an editor who said, oh, I wouldn't include that, don't include this. In fact, it, it, the, the final book at 14 hours is a lot shorter than I would have had. And I can see people <laughs> might want to just regulate their, their intake on this. But uh, yeah, in, in, I find it very hard, but I, I, had to, I had to do the history of insects. So the first chapter is, 
you know, where insects come from. And I called it the creatures from the Blue Lagoon because that's what they are. I mean, insects, everything on land comes from the ocean. So a little bit about the history of insects. I then did a bit about what makes insects insects, why, why and what they are, how they look, you know, what makes them a successful animal group. And of course, the most obvious thing in chapter three is what, how do they fit into the ecology of the earth? And they are vitally important. They are like the ultimate oil in the machinery. They're the cogs that make it all work. Most animals on earth, most higher animals, most vertebrate animals, eat insects. Uh, and without that, you, you simply wouldn't have, you know, the pangolins and the aardvarks and the anteaters and the, well, the rest of it, uh, because insects are the major animal food on earth and then chapter four of course is all about sex because who doesn't like sex and there are some <laughs> there are some remarkable stories about insect sex which i had to cut down severely because there are so many of them and we might imagine fondly that we have a really interesting sex life wrong uh, our sex life is the dullest and most pedestrian affair you could possibly imagine Whereas insects are, you know, eating parts of each other, actually physically chewing bits off each other. Uh, and every permutation from group sex, transgender insects, all the rest of it. I mean, you, you just couldn't make it up. So that was chapter uh, four. Uh, yeah, and, and so I, I just had to go through. In fact, it was, it was very difficult. But the chapter seven, what have insects ever done for us, I think is one of my favourite chapters because... People, they often ask that. They say, well, what, why should I care? Why should I care that some insect I've never heard of becomes extinct? What, what's it got to do with me? And I try and explain what it's got to do with them and why we should care about it. Chapter 8, of course, is a, is a risk being rather depressing because it is a bit of an examination of what what could, what has gone wrong, what could go wrong. And... A suggestion as to how we might redress it. I, I'm not optimistic, I have to say. But I can't, of course, I can't be down about it because people don't like depressing things. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do alternate between feeling optimistic and positive that we might get it right, we might realise that the natural world is vitally important, that without it we are stuffed... And then again, I think, well, actually, from what I see happening, it, it, they're not going to—they're not going to realise in time. They will continue to assume that that you can have sustainable growth, which you can't. I mean, the two words are mutually exclusive. You can be sustainable, or you can have growth. You cannot have both. And in in a finite world with a finite pot of stuff sustainable growth is not possible no matter how slow it is um, and I'm afraid we have now reached that point pretty quickly actually where bacterial if we were a bacterial colony in agar plate we are now re we have now reached the edge of the dish and are going oh oh hang on a minute <laughs> there's no more food <laughs> there's nowhere to go what happens next well I think we know what happens now. Oh, stage four of the growth curve. We <laughs> all did that in biology. It's not good. Exactly. Well, exactly, Neil. It, exactly. But I think that. it is like it, it's. There's a really nice balance of kind of positive and negative, if you like, in the book. Like when you listen to it, there are. I think I think you you have got the balance just right there 
for people? Well, I'm glad. I'm I'm grateful to you, Vic, for for saying that because there were times that I thought, you know, that, that I hadn't. But I, you know, you you do want to give people the thought that yes, we can change and we can do it right and things will be better. But you don't have to look back through our history very far to find civilization after civilization who did not get it right. But we now know more than we ever did or, or have done. So the hope is that we that we do get it right. Yeah, so hope the government start listening <laughs> to scientists and people that know what they're talking about rather than just politics. But... Well, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Now, now, now that's optimism for you. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just optimistic about a government. Wow, that's <laughs> something weird going on. You've got a lot of great guests you've had. Dr. Erica McAllister, who's who we know from the show, and, Do- and Professor Helen Roy as well, of course, um, who's also been Fantastic, on the show. Yeah. But also uh, Jane Horrocks, who was, I was surprised to hear. We mentioned yeah. Steve Simpson and... Um, and some bloke called Sir David Attenborough. I've never heard of him. Sir David Attenborough, <laughs> yes. I, I was thrilled that, that he agreed to, to be interviewed. I, I went to his house. Uh, I have met him, of course, several times, and I, I worked with him as the scientific advisor on his first and only insect show, which was called... Life in the Undergrowth. Life in the Undergrowth, absolutely, which is now quite, quite old. It's, it's quite long in a tooth. <laughs> and it would be really nice if I could make a, an update of that sometime. Well, interestingly, we had Paul Williams, who did Green Planet, producer-director for that. Yeah. He right. is pushing for an update of Life in the Undergrowth. So, uh, well, if they crossed. don't ask me to do it, I'm going to be very <laughs> cheesed off. But we'll be campaigning uh, for you to do yeah. it. Don't worry. Well, <laughs> I, I just think it would be so fantastic, because uh, in the time that we that they made the first one, the, the camera technology, the, the hardware and software and the techniques have just multiplied you know, exponentially. You can do things that you never imagined would be possible. Well, the kit I've got, uh, I can, I've filmed bee flies um, flicking eggs into the nest. We've just kit I've got. It's not that expensive. What, could they, what they could do with top-of-the-range stuff now, I, I, I'm desperate to see, put it that way. <laughs> well, uh, that's something I've only seen. I haven't ever filmed that. I mean, that's fantastic, yeah. Absolutely, and and I and I realise now that science is about telling stories. You've got to, if you're going to interest people, you've got to tell stories, and and I think that's something I can do, and and that I enjoy doing, and I think that's what makes this is what makes the difference between a blue chip production, which is just beautiful, beautiful filming, with a voiceover track done by somebody who's an actor or something not anybody on screen and I think beautiful as they are I don't think they they have the lasting impact I think you need a presenter on screen somebody who you can relate to is interesting interested who knows the stuff and can take you on a journey and I think I think audiences prefer that and they they want to the trouble is of course that it's harder to sell that sort of uh, all over the world it's much easier to sell a, a film that is just uh, a blue chip I, I think you're right as well it, it, it's being able to engage on so many different levels I mean one thing I really liked about the audiobook was just like I mean little things that pop up about um, bee vomit just made me giggle. I had to basically yeah. repeat the entire thing to my parents yeah. at the weekend about bee vomit and also the bees and caffeine as well yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, just. I mean, and I'm just scratching the surface on this stuff. I mean, r- really scratching the surface. I wish I could have done 
more chapters, longer chapters. But my my editor, as I say, was was uh, <laughs> was saying, no, you can't, you can't. T- well, you can't say it all. Good Lord, I mean, it's you know, insects are the biggest, the most abundant, the most successful, the most diverse multicellular animal group there has ever been. And and as I say in some parts of the book, you know, if we ever do find a planet elsewhere, if we ever get to an exoplanet which has a suitable habitat and where life has evolved past a single cell stage, I'm going to bet you they, they look like insects. I mean, that that's the, you know, it's hard to imagine a self-replicating, self-sustaining organism that can do the, the things that, that, that have to be done that doesn't look pretty much like an insect or a spider or a, an arthropod of some sort. Here's a nice tricky question for you, George. Is there anyone alive or dead who you would have put on there that you couldn't? Well, yeah, there, there are two people actually that I tried to get on. One, I wanted to get on Prince Charles because I know he's very passionate about organic farming and hedgerows and I think I think he, he would have had some interesting things to say, but his team of equerries obviously ignored my <laughs> my requests. The The other person, of course, who uh, died very recently is the great, the, the late great E.O. Wilson. And I did request an interview with him. I wasn't able to get it. And, and I would have, have tried again, but he died. Because I, I think he has a great way of telling stuff. He's, he has a great way of, of telling stories about ants, particularly about ants, and he is passionate, and you, you sort of, you warm to that immediately. And I think that's one thing you really notice about the guests that you, you did have on, with the little snippets of the interview, you can tell how passionate each one of them are about their subjects and their, their areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I should have had more interviewees, I suppose, but uh, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's, it was the first audiobook I've ever done. It's the first, the first audiobook that Howes have produced in this way. So we, we're sort of finding it, how it works out as, as we go along. You have to do a volume two. I was about to say that, yeah. Volume two. <laughs> yeah. Insects, small and great, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. <laughs> There's a water boatman there. <laughs> or in the air. And the land, and under the land, and yeah, even in your bed. <laughs> oh yeah, I've I've been attacked by pretty much everything, and I, I remember, and of course in, in the book I do, I do tell this story where we were filming in Australia, and I I got hammered by bedbugs in this, this hotel. I mean, really nailed. I mean, it was about three in the morning and I woke up. I could feel them walking across my chest. And I, I grabbed my tube, which I had, of course, entomologists always have tubes with them. And I filled a small tube with about 10 of these little buggers. And I took them down to the, the, the hotel owner the next morning, showed them to him, and he went, oh, yeah, mate, and what are they? And I went, well, they're the bedbugs. Oh, uh, yeah, and who, who says? How do you know that bed bugs? <laughs> I, I then showed him my Oxford University card, you know. Uh, my... <laughs> and his, his, his face blanched visibly, and he went, oh, all right, Mike, yeah. Well, you won't tell anybody about it, will you? <laughs> I said, well, that depends, doesn't it? So then that evening, the entire film crew got a, a crate of very nice red wine, <laughs> which they drank. Pretty much. I, I didn't get any of it. Oh, well. Sacrifice for your crew. Oh, then they were extremely happy, yeah. <laughs> happy crew, happy life. But the, the important question is, are they the same species you get in the UK? Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's one, one species worldwide, worldwide. I did a, a film for ITV actually, where I called what was it called again? It was about insects in your house, animals in your house. And I was put to bed in this house that we'd hired, and then this this guy wandered in in the darkness, and he deposited three hundred bed bugs, <sighs> hungry hungry bed bugs, on the duvet, and then retired. And this was all being filmed in infrared and stuff. And I, I was aware of these things advancing in a phalanx towards my bare flesh. God. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the most unpleasant evening I'd spent. I, d- I did sleep eventually, and in the morning, uh, my arms were just covered with red marks. You know? I remember being in my friend's student flat at about two in the morning, desperately revising for an exam the next day. And there was an old valance around the bed when he got in there, he just stuffed down the back of his bed. And obviously, you know, mm. they they wait, don't they, till the body heat comes in. Mm. And he yeah, he yeah. had these marks on his arm and not knowing where, he thought it was like, you know, mosquitoes or something getting in. And I'm sitting there and I'm mm. like, that's a weird looking beetle. And then, oh, because I've never seen a bed bug before. I went, that's a bed bug. He went, what's that? He never heard of them because he's not a nature-obsessed nerd like me. <laughs> well, they are having a comeback, uh, I have to say. They're commoner than you think. And they've also got interesting mating yeah. behaviour, haven't they? Uh, well, lots of insects have. Uh, bed bugs engage in a thing called traumatic insemination, which basically the, the male has a, a spike-like penis, which it just stabs into the female but she has evolved a, a special area on her abdomen called the spermalege which is a sort of sponge-like uh, structure which sort of encourages him to stick it there rather than in her leg or her head or something and the the sperms migrate to the ovaries after that but uh, a few bugs do do have interesting sex there was a, there was a very interesting bug called uh, which was called in france the sex crazed bug because <laughs> The males, of course, will stab anything that passes, you know, other males, immature bugs, anything they get their hands on, basically. Boys will be boys, etc. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Men like that. Uh, yeah, so that's right. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yes. I remember a few years ago, I was surveying for great green bush crickets mm. close to where I live and managed to find numerous ones and actually came across a mating pair. All right. It's actually. When you watch it, it's surprising how brutal mating great green bush crickets are. Oh, yeah. That's very interesting as well. Yeah, I found a female with a load of white stuff hanging out of her. They leave a plug, don't they, the males, I think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the, the things about insect sex that is so remarkable. And it, it actually explains a lot of the behaviour. So, in general, the last male to mate will fertilise the majority of the eggs because the sperm is stored inside the female in a blind-ended sack. So if you're the first to mate, your sperm's in at the end of the sack and it builds up until the last male to mate, his sperm is at the front end of the sack. And so as the eggs pass down the oviduct, you will fertilise most of the eggs. So there has evolved a whole range of techniques to make absolutely sure that no male mates after you. Either that or you have to scrape out the sperm of earlier males. And of course, I, I say in the book, it's a bit... I mean, if we had that arrangement in human beings, a very common way of insects to achieve this is to mate guard or to, to remain locked in copula for a long time. So you will mate, the sperm will be passed on in a few seconds, a minute, but you will remain in copula for two days, three days, so that you physically block the access to any other male. 
So in, in our world, it would be like us <laughs> three months locked together, you know, <laughs> uh, which would make driving the car to the shops bloody difficult. You know. um, I'll do the clutch. You you steer. <laughs> I can't see where we're going. Oh, look, look out. So it would be all very, very inconvenient and very boring ultimately, I suspect. Uh, well, talking of... Why are we not talking of that? <laughs> Yeah. So where are you going with that? Yeah. <laughs> this is a family show now. No, I was I was going to say being misquoted, but I thought it was not quite the segue I was hoping there. There was a brilliant story about you thinking you may have discovered the smallest insect in the book, and and the dangers of the press. Oh God, yes, this is yes. Well, the the press can be your friend, but they can be a pain in the backside sometimes. So I was working in Tanzania and we happened to be visited on this Royal Geographical Expedition uh, to Tanzania by the Duke of Kent. He arrived to sort of you know have a look at what was going on. I was spraying trees in the savannah to get the, the insects out of them and to see what how communities of insects were assembled in, in savannah trees. During the course of this, I found a really, really tiny wasp. I mean, it was minuscule and I imagined that it was actually pretty much the smallest thing that had ever been found so I I casually mentioned this you know to a reporter who was attached to the Duke and I didn't think anything more of it until I got home to Oxford about two weeks afterwards and there was uh, there were newspapers ringing there was a tv crew outside you know all saying where where is this (laughs) where's this smallest insect let's see it and of course I had something like 700 tubes of alcohol containing the entire collection from the trees. I couldn't find it. I said, well, it's in there somewhere. I have no idea where it is. It would take me a couple of weeks to find it. So, of course, the, the headline in the, the, one of the newspapers the next day was, with a cartoon, if you please, of me wearing a white coat and bald, that, their archetypal image of a scientist, saying, I found the world's smallest insect. Oh, dear, where is it? Ha, ha, ha. Very funny. So... Yeah, it was it was a bit like that. I did eventually find this insect. It wasn't quite as small as I thought. It was close, close, but no cigar. I was going to say up there, but more like down there, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit small, but it was small and undescribed as well. Oh, so at least it's a I new mean... species. But um, oh yeah. yeah, when you get into little things like that, pretty much <laughs> a lot of the things you find would be, wouldn't they, in somewhere like that? Well, it, this is it. I, I think this is what people don't understand, uh, although things are changing, of course. I mean, we are now entering a phase of the Earth's history when we are losing wilderness, losing habitat at such an alarming rate. And we know that rainforests, we know this, rainforests are where 50%, if not as much as 75% of terrestrial organisms live. And we are felling them for cattle ranching, from soybean, for palm oil, for all the wrong reasons. And within the next 30, 40 years, half of the rainforest will be gone, which means we are effectively going to lose 50% of all species on Earth. And most of them we don't know anything about. So the, the reality is that most species on Earth will come and go without, without us ever knowing they were there at all. So we, we've named a million species of insects, say. We're pretty sure there are, or were, eight million undescribed. So I, I think it's a very short-sighted and a very sad reflection on us as a species that we will never know how many species we share the Earth with. Yeah, it's a bit... But 
I mean, it's important we raise these issues and that's something you've been doing quite a bit on Twitter. I've noticed recently you've, like me and a few other ideological minded people, have been somewhat annoyed about the rise of, let's call it what it is, plastic grass, not these fake lawns, all this kind of stuff. Oh, oh. oh plastic grass. Well, you know, you can you can see its value in some ways, you know, for old weather pictures okay. or or you know something like this. But you know, for gardens to cover themselves in this plastic debris, which will break down, and and in fact, when it begins to look a bit tatty, which is not very long actually, even the expensive ones, they just get rolled up and dumped in landfill, or there's great piles of them somewhere, and they, they get new ones. I mean, it is the most soulless mind-numbingly awful thing but you know people say well it's my right it's my right I can have what I want and they might be right but you know there has to come a point when you think when you have to accept that there is a climate emergency there is an ecological emergency and we know that insects are going down the tubes in many ways and I haven't seen a, a single piece of research to show otherwise. We need to look after every single bit we've got. And I mean, gardens in England cover much, much more area than, than all the national reserves added up. So, you know, we should, you know, if we can't look after them in our own gardens and if we can't look up after road verges and, you know, spraying and mowing and flailing hedges. I mean, it's like, but this obsession with neatness has just gone too far. So I was actually listening to that that part that, you know, you're talking about gardens and stuff. And there was actually, I think that same day I'd seen a news article about some research that's been done in Bristol. Mm. About, I don't know if you've seen this one, about like they're basically looking at the different sizes of gardens and the amount of pollinators and that that they would get into different sized gardens. And I've not managed to get, get hold of the, the full thing yet, but so that even even the smallest garden planted with the right plants, even if it's just pot plants, can be, you know, vital mm-hmm. areas for our pollinators. I mean, even if you don't want to go down the route of completely rewilding your garden oh, uh, or whatever, absolutely. but everybody could do something. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and everybody should do something. I mean, it's absolutely right. And this is why people need to understand the importance and the contribution of insects. They are, they are the ecological, they are the ecological engine of the world. I mean, they are the major carnivores. They are the major herbivores. They are the recyclers, the pollinators. They take away dung and, and, and carcasses. They, they're the wiring of, of the world, if you like. The energy flows through them and is eaten by higher animals. We, without insects, we would literally have a very tough time of surviving. And I know that there's some of the, of the newspapers were saying things like, you know, there might be no insects at the end of the century. Of course, that's absurd. That is utterly absurd. The insects will survive. They're, they breed very fast. They're very adaptable. And no matter what we do, insects will go on. And I, that gives me a crumb of, of, of comfort, at least. They've been around for 400 million years. They, they, they'll see us out. Of that, I'm absolutely sure. Yeah, just be pharaoh ants everywhere. And fire ants. <laughs> <laughs> Even this last week, when we've had really nice weather here, you know, I've sat out and worked in the garden. And, you know, already this year, I've got four species of spider. The ants are out and about. The bees are out and about. Three different yeah. species of butterfly. Um, bee some of the first bee flies. You know, flies. Bee flies are nice. Yeah, yeah, everything. Just just sitting there and watching everything just, just come to life and 
I mean, my my garden, I, we have pretty much rewilded what rewilded our garden. It was grass and decking, and I hate decking. I can't be with mm, decking. Mm, mm. And and we we ripped out the decking, and we actually put slate chippings down. Mm. And oh, you know, on a nice on a warm day, you go up there, it's just covered in spiders and other stuff. It's amazing. Why yeah. wouldn't you want that in your garden? Well, well lots of people, and we, this is we, we have to accept that lots of people don't like insects. They 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 find them alarming. They they're scared of them, and it's a question of education. It's a question of education. A, a, a garden without the sound of, of wasps and bees buzzing around and hoverflies, it would be a soulless and dispiriting place. And that, I'm afraid, is you know we we've seen some of the worst gardens recently with the lawns and the this plastic plants and it's just you 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 just clap your hand to your head and think look guys this this is how it's all going to end this this <laughs> do you not see how many how many civilizations have collapsed because they were so they had separated themselves so much from the natural world and this is something that i i keep on coming back to time and time again we are very clever animals there's no doubt about it we we can image the world in so many ways now in 400 years we've gone from a, a simple glass hand lens to you know machines that can look at the structure of matter at the other end of the spectrum we're sending off probes to look at the sun to orbit galaxies elsewhere we've got not hubble anymore it's the james webb space telescope to see back in time further than ever before these are unimaginable things just a hundred years ago unimaginable and yet the bit in the middle of this space between the infinitesimally small and the astronomically large which we can both image either end of the bit in the middle the earth the, the life support system that we all depend on is being systematically trashed there's no doubt about it. You know, the World Banks in 2019 lent a huge amount of money linked almost directly to wildlife loss, wilderness loss, habitat loss, biodiversity loss. Um, we, we just, when are they going to realise, you know, we need this stuff. This stuff is not there for fun. This stuff we need, all of it. And if we can't, uh, at least appreciate that. Well, if we if we can't appreciate it, if we don't appreciate it, it will come back and bite us in the collective arse. And I'm afraid that it's not going to be fun. And I guess that's that's where creating the stories and the connect and trying to get people to connect with it. That's where that becomes so important. You know, it, it, if you can, and I think certainly with younger generations as well, trying to get them to connect more with it i know you know when i've had um interactions with with children or even my nieces and that you know they're 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 little sponges and they're so fascinated by everything yeah yeah and then it gets lost somewhere but it's trying to keep that going (laughs) absolutely i mean we we've been doing education for yonks and yonks and yonks and i always say you know between the age of five and eight you learn more than you'll ever learn again this is why it's so important primary education is more important than secondary i think and that's why we should teach we we should pay primary teachers a lot more than we are and we should value it a lot more but by the time you're 13 14 you're you're set really 
this is the critical stage, five to eight. And I try to go into schools and enthuse them about insects. And generally, they are very receptive indeed. An interviewer once asked uh, at Attenborough, he said, oh, Sir David, isn't it wonderful how you, you have retained your, your childlike interest in the natural world? And he looked at the guy and said, and, and how did you lose yours? And I think, and I think that's, that sort of sums it up. You know, they, they, some people retain it and see the value of it, uh, but other people are just caught up in the whole make your money, get your house, you know, just do the, the, the thing that we're all supposed to do, you know. And, um, and I, I think we need to really look at growth in, in a different way. We, we need, we need degrowth. You, you cannot, you cannot go on. I think people are realizing this, but it's the elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about it. Uh, when I was born, there were 2.4 billion. There are now 8 billion. We'll be heading for 10 billion. You know, it, it doesn't take a genius to work out that things are going to get pretty fraught. Yeah. Right. I think we need to finish on a slightly more positive question. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> Go outside and look for insects. See how many insects you can find in your garden. It is absolutely glorious. That is how I try and end every... Um, cause uh, I can't believe you know this, George, but I, I do environmental education as a living, and obviously I show these kids these wonderful things, and I think, well, I don't want them to just stop now because what, what probably you know I was always interested, but what kept me going was someone came into my school and did a mini beast hunt, and then I went home and kept doing it, and I haven't stopped basically. <laughs> and so I always tell them, look, go to your local park, ask mum and dad or your grandparents to have a look around your garden. So just, just you know, ask first, don't get in trouble like I used to with my mum. <laughs> Pretend <laughs> moving pots and not putting them back properly. Yeah. You know, um, my parents encourage it, just annoyed them because I messed their garden up. But, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's just encouraging them. Buy, yeah. buy a hand lens, go looking for stuff. If you want to understand the world, I mean, that's what I wanted to do as a kid. I wanted to understand how the yeah. world worked. That's That was all I wanted to do. And I'm still doing it. I'm still trying to understand it. And if you if you want to understand how the world works and you don't, understand what insects are doing you are missing the majority of the picture vertebrate animals animals with a backbone aardvarks to zebras blue whales bats cats rats mammals amphibians reptiles fish us you know 2.9 percent of all species you know <laughs> they're big and hairy and they fly but actually they they're not doing a huge amount of stuff it's the insects that make the world work. Well, that's what we always, we've said it many times on this show and I've used it in many talks, yeah. isn't it? Birds and mammals are boring, asterisks, compared to the invertebrates and reptiles. <laughs> and we have to include amphibians in them because I have a, I'm a little bit obsessed with frogs, so we always have to include amphibians. But I actually think one, there was there was a bit in the book that actually really interested me and that was that there was actually a bit in there about the interaction between invertebrates and plants Mm. You know, and, Phil and all of that, and that, yeah, yeah that absolutely fascinating. Well, this is that. I mean, you know, the the reason that we have all these fantastic drugs, you know, quinine, uh, nicotine, caffeine, all the drugs, all the alkaloids that we use in pharmacology, they have evolved because plants didn't want insects to eat them. So that, that's why they're there. So we have so much to be grateful to insects for. Virtually. Half, probably more than half, seventy-five percent of all the drugs that we use or are likely to use exist because insects evolved 
to eat plants. Yeah, that someone put a, a joke cartoon up on the internet a few weeks ago about that sort of like plants. Ah, oh, I have caffeine. Oh, I have nicotine. That'll stop those insects. Humans come along. Oh, yummy. <laughs> Poor plants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but let's finish on a, a on a on a fun question. So. It's, it's not going to be an easy one, sorry, George. But if you had to pick one, and of course with the UK Wildlife Podcast, we'll go with British. One British invertebrate as your favourite. What would you pick? I, if you asked me that on subsequent days, I'd probably give you various answers. For me, one of the things that I I really love and I always have done ever since I first saw them mm. were glowworms, which of course are a lot less common than than they were. And you cannot beat walking along a darkened hedgerow and seeing these little lights shining out. I think they're absolutely phenomenal. But I could have answered. I could have answered so many other ways. You know, hoverflies. Any of the hoverflies that are so elegant as aerial machines, little micro pieces of incredible engineering. Bees, of course. Any of the bees. I mean, the, <laughs> any of the bees would be fantastic. Uh, Wasps! Oh my goodness, so interesting. I, I, it's it's unfair. It's unfair to even ask me that. Yeah, it was a bit it's of an unfair question, but I had to do it anyway. It's unfair. No, I'm not going to answer it because I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is it tiger beetles, bee flies, raft spiders? You know, so many choices. Bee flies. Oh, yeah. Well, here's a bit of a weird one for you. Having I just mentioned bee flies, actually, I was sat in the garden having a cup of tea the other day, and I watched this bee fly, and it was basically facing my wall, and it was just there hovering right in front of the wall, hmm. didn't move, and then just kept going, just, I don't, I don't know, it's like it was mesmerised by my wall. <laughs> well, it probably was, it was going... There was nothing on the wall. <laughs> I mean, some lovely flowers in the garden it could have gone to, but no, it liked the brick wall. Well, you know, there, there you go. It, it <laughs> might have just been one of those bee flies that really shouldn't really work. It, it was a, it was a bee gone <laughs> fly. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it didn't look quite right. It was, very, not right in but, the you head. know you see the you see those com you know those like little cartoons of moths going into the lights mm. continually mm. it was like that against the wall didn't look right yeah in, in any ant trail you see ants you know thousands of ants scurrying along a trail and there's always one good going the wrong way going why are they all going <laughs> this way no wood ants, yeah. <laughs> i want to go this way no you must go this way <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Wood ants could mention wood ants as well. I'm slightly obsessed with them too. They they are cool. I've I've been known to be like laying next to the nest to get completely covered in them. And it, do, do you find their bites hurt at all, George? Because they don't bother me. But uh, well, you've been they, bitten they, by so many things. Of, <laughs> I've been bitten by so many things. I, I can. But yeah, wood ants can be mildly irritant. Mildly irritant. Well, if if they go up your trouser leg far enough, I, they hurt. But they, we'll leave it at that. I did have a very nasty experience in Tanzania when I found a remarkable bug on a plant. I was so transfixed with this bug, I went over and I, I had to catch them, I had to look at them carefully. And I was standing I was standing in a column of driver ants. I was unaware of this. And all my assistants and people were, were, were standing back murmuring to themselves until I realised that the ants crawled up both my legs inside my trousers. But they didn't attack until they reached the join of the trousers at the top. And then I had to basically strip off because I was being absolutely nailed by driver ants. And I said to them, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Oh, we, we didn't want to interfere with your work, they said. <laughs> they said <laughs> laughing to themselves. Ah, <laughs> yes, they're hysterical. Thanks, guys. Do they sting as well, driver ants? No, do they sting and bite? Oh, God, I don't know. It hurts anyway. Doesn't no, matter I, they hurt. 
think it was only a bite. I, I think it was only a bite, this one. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. It seems like a good time to finish. But thanks so much for coming back on again, George. My pleasure. Absolutely. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I, I would certainly recommend for anyone and everyone to go and get the audiobook and listen to it because it is absolutely fantastic as i said before i think you've got it absolutely spot on there with you know that that right of everything and there's the humor in there and everything is great i'm very pleased vic i i'm normally not pleased with anything i do i always watch the film back or hear that oh god why did i do that i'm not happy with that but this one i actually am i'm quite pleased with it you should be should be very very pleased with it yeah i've i've I know I haven't finished it yet, so maybe, hopefully, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't take a downhill turn, but it's been brilliant what I've listened to so far. <laughs> it gets better, honestly. It just gets better as you go through. Yeah, I've had it on all day. Yeah, well, that's it from us. Thanks again for coming on, George. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, all one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.